When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and he said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall, be, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. This is a fun one, isn't it? Um, let's pray, and uh, we'll see what God has in store for us. Uh, God, we, we thank you for bringing us together tonight. We thank you for keeping us here. Uh, we thank you that uh, we can come together, that we can hear uh, these old stories uh, from the Old Testament, and we can ask questions, and we can try to understand, and uh, we might even begin to believe that you could answer those questions and speak to us and actually bring about real transformation and change in our lives to make us people uh, who love you and who love each other. Uh, we need your help for that. I need your help for that tonight. So we pray uh, that you would do that for us uh, wherever we are coming from uh, tonight. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, so I was listening to this story on NPR a while back. Uh, it was about a guy named Jorge who had just moved uh, to New York City. And uh, it was the first time in his life that he had a job, and he had his own place to live. He was you know, out of college, out on his own, and he was really proud of the studio apartment he had and was feeling like, you know what, I'm in the East Village, I'm making it, like I'm out of my own New York City, this is awesome. And so he sits down, as all young successful people do, and turns on The Bachelorette. Uh, and he's watching The Bachelorette, and it's, uh, they're down to the final four in The Bachelorette. And uh, Trista was the, the bachelorette, and she's dating this guy named Todd. He's in the final four. And it's the episode where she goes and visits the people's hometown and sees where they live. And so uh, this guy's from New York. And so the guy's like, I just moved here a week ago. I'm just like, just started my job. This is so cool. Maybe I'll see a place in New York that I recognize or, you know, whatever. This will be neat. Uh, and they're going to Todd's apartment on the show, and he recognizes the awning of his building. He's like, this is amazing. Like, that's my building on the, on the Bachelor right now. And then they go into it. It's like, oh, my gosh, Todd lives in my building. Like, the Bachelorette is in my building. And uh, then they get on the elevator, and uh, Jorge lives on the fifth floor, and they take the elevator to the fourth floor, and they walk down the hallway, and it's the exact same apartment, just one floor down from him. Now, the Bachelorette's not filmed live, if you've never seen it. But he's like, this is crazy. Like, they're actually going into my apartment. And then they go into Todd's apartment, and it's exactly like Jorge's apartment, but just nicer. Like, the walls are, like, clean, and the furniture is better, and there's been some renovations. The kitchen is nicer and newer, better TV, 
uh, that he said like they had cut out the wall, so there's like this half wall between the kitchen and the living room to create flow, and there's like a cool, you know, uh, granite bar in the middle, and he's like, man, I'm not doing as well as like I thought I was, <laughs> like Todd's apartment's really nice, um, but he's like, you know, but okay, this is still really cool, and then they cut to like the interview with Trista about how the date's going, and she says this, direct quote, it, it played on the show, they played the actual audio clip from The Bachelorette, it's great, she says, you know, I've dated guys with bad apartments before, and I can't judge him just on that. But what I really need to find out is what it is that makes him feel this way about himself that he has to live like this. <laughs> about the guy who lives in his apartment but better, uh, says Trista. And, um, and she dumps him. Like, he doesn't make the cut, uh, Todd, in the show. And then later, he's, his friends, his area friends are like, no, 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 like, don't worry about that. She doesn't know what New York is like. You know, she doesn't know how small our apartments are. She doesn't you know, get what it means to live in the city. She's not from here. And then the next day in the New York Post, there's a review of the, of the previous night's episode of The Bachelorette, and it said this. Todd's fate on The Bachelorette was set the moment Trista set foot in the squalid Avenue A apartment. <laughs> and so uh, Jorge suddenly realized that he wasn't doing quite as well as he thought he was. Um, verse 1 of Genesis 17 is kind of like turning on the bachelorette and seeing your apartment, but better, and someone reject a person and break up with them. You ever been dumped in the worst feeling? Quick show of hands. Who's been dumped before? I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> that was so mean. Uh, it, it's, it is uh, the Bible here is us watching The Bachelorette and suddenly realizing that we're not doing quite as well as we thought. Uh, Verse 1, walk before me, says God, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. So this uh, passage where God makes a covenant, a relational permanent agreement between Abraham and himself, uh, is, is really sort of showing us a picture of what does it look like to live a life with God? What does it look like to live with him, to walk before him? Um, and, and God gives him three things to show him how to live that life. And the first is this command. This command that says, walk before me and be blameless. And that command uh, is a really ironic command. If you've been around the last several weeks, you realize that Abram is anything but blameless. It's a real command, walk before me and be blameless. It's a bona fide command. Um, but given his track record, even a few verses before this started, where uh, Abram sleeps with another woman besides his wife at her suggestion to try to fulfill God's promises for God. Um, He's uh, given his wife over, so she's given another woman to him, and he's given her to another man previously. And it's absurd, and even after he comes to faith, and even after he is following God, he continues to do these things, and he will do it again later. He'll He'll lie again to a king that he's afraid of and say that Sarah's my sister. You can have her for my wife. Um, so it's, it's a really ironic command because he is anything but blameless. And this command is repeated in various ways throughout the Bible, not just to Abram, but for us. I mean, Jesus says in the famous Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And First Peter quotes the Old Testament and says, be holy as I am holy says God. 
And it's ironic because we are anything but any of those things. Um, Let me ask you this if you're a Christian. Do you have a sense of irony about the fact that you're a Christian? Do you have a sense of irony about yourself? Not a cynicism about yourself. But Christians should be people who are just like, yeah, it's kind of, this is a little ridiculous. <laughs> like, uh, this, is, this is not uh, kind of what the commands are kind of telling me to be. Would your friends say about you, you know, she's, she's genuine and loving and she doesn't take herself too seriously? Um, there's a genuine sense about you that's just like, well, I, yes, I'm a Christian, but I am also, I'm, I'm just me. <laughs> Like, I've, I'm full of, of all the problems. There's this irony of this command, and there's an irony of grace if you're a believer. But it's not just irony in this command. There's also hope. There's also hope in it. Um, the hope of this command is that God is saying, because it's a real commandment, he's saying, walk before me and be blameless. There must be some implication that real change is expected in Abraham's life and in our lives along with him. That God must have some plan. Back in Genesis 15, we looked at it a few weeks ago, uh, Abraham believes in God and it says it is credited to him as righteousness. The big theological word for that is justification, that he's declared righteous before God. So he's forgiven already. This has already taken place. But then God is saying here, like, this covenant's about you being transformed. It's about you changing, about you growing. Um, And God knows that Abraham's not perfect. He knows that he's going to do the same stuff over and over again. But also notice the hope of the command. He doesn't just say, walk blamelessly. He says, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me. Which means not in front of him, like lead the way. But it means in my presence. Walk with me. I am with you. You're not walk away and be blameless, but walk before me. Uh, And that hope part, some of us need to hear the irony part, like don't take yourself so seriously. Take God very seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. But some of you need to hear like the hope of that, because some of you are despairing. Some of you are cynical about yourself and about other people. Um, Some of us are despairing and think, I cannot change. I'm stuck, and I'm never going to be any different. And it's not ironic. It's just embarrassing um, that I could never change. But... Walk before me and be blameless says, you know, that I am, there's an irony. I know I'm not perfect, but I am changing. God is at work in me. I am growing. Um, the New Testament in Philippians says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That God is working on you, that you are in process. Um, but, but it's hard for us to see how that could be. It's probably hard for Abraham. Like, how? What does that look like? Um, so the second thing, he gives him a command for living with him. But he also gives him a name. He gives him a new name. Um, in verse 5, he takes his name Abram, which already just means literally father. It's a Hebrew word for father. And then he gives him the name Abraham or Abraham, which just means father of a multitude. So his old name was Daddy, and now his name is Big Daddy, <laughs> uh, which would inspire the song, of course. I like it when you call me Big Papa, right? That's where, we, that's where that came from. Um, that's a song about Abraham and um, it's a father of a multitude it's taking the same uh, thing from before but it's expanding it it's making it larger it's giving him a a new and fuller identity because naming is all about identity and there's this interesting thing in the Bible where God gives different people at different times new names and Jesus was a big fan of this he would do it all the time and when you name someone in the Bible it's 
like we do it too, right? We give nicknames to people. Uh, I've got four children, um, and we all we have these bizarre like nicknames for our kids. Uh, our son Elijah probably has the most nicknames because he's third, and so he had two verbal siblings ahead of him uh, when they were still kind of in the nicknaming stage, when they were still young enough to just kind of make stuff up. So he was Wige or Wijah, which sounds like Elijah, or just Lige, which is you know, a derivative of, of Elijah. And then there's others that just make no sense at all, like um, sometimes we call him Bosch. I don't know. He loves that show on Amazon Prime, Bosch. Uh, we watch it all the time, the crime one. I'm kidding. If you haven't seen the show, it's not child appropriate. Uh, I, I traced that one too. Like, we got a new dishwasher when he was really little, and it's the brand name Bosch, and it was so quiet, and I was always like, oh, I love the Bosch. And I think they heard it, and they're like, oh, he's talking about Elijah. Like, we're going to call him Bosch now. But he would respond to it. We call him Lloyd. I don't know. Um, why? I think it's from a cartoon where he, there's a kid who kind of looks like him on the cartoons. We call him Lloyd. And then Christmas, sometimes I just call Elijah Christmas, which is derivative of Lloyd, because there's Lloyd from the Ninjago uh, Lego show that's Lloyd, but then there's Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber. So when I hear the name Lloyd, I think of Lloyd Christmas, so I would call him Lloyd Christmas, and that just got shortened to Christmas. So to this day, I'll be like, hey, Christmas, and he, like, my son knows I'm talking to him. His name is Elijah, right? It makes no sense. But see, these things, they're terms of endearment, right? Um, but they're also terms of identity, even when they're silly like that, because Nobody else calls him Bosch. Nobody else calls him Christmas. When he hears that name and responds to it, he knows he's one of us. It's all in the family. Uh, it's this place of security of who he is. Um, and in the Bible, even more than that, names are so much more significant. It's not just a term of endearment that God is giving his child Abram. He's redefining who he is. He's saying, this is who you are. This is your new identity. This is your new name. And embedded in that name is the promise of God, father of many nations. The name tells the story of the promise. And what's interesting, if you notice in verse 5, he says, I will call you Abraham because I have made you the father of many nations. At this point in the story, Abraham is 99 years old and his wife Sarah is sterile. She's barren. They've been trying for years, and it hasn't happened. And God says, I have made you already. Um, and in the New Testament, it does the same thing. In Ephesians, Paul talks about Christians as being seated in the heavenly places, like already seated up there next to God where Christ is. Um, he talks about us in Romans 8 as having already been glorified. Glorification in the Bible is being made perfect, transported into like this heavenly state where we are with God. And made like he is. And he talks about it in the past tense. How can he say that? How can he say that? He can say it because he says, I am God Almighty. I can give you your name because of my name. And it's in the Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. You might have heard that name before. God gives different names for himself that tell us something about him. And he is saying, I am Almighty. So that I can say a promise to you and talk about it in the past tense. Because I am so confident that I will fulfill my promises and so able to fulfill my promises that I can talk about things in the future as if they are actually true now. I have made you the father. And he goes on in 6 and 8 and he does the I will, I will, I'm going to multiply you, kings will come from you. I will, I will, I will, which we saw in chapter 12. It's God's way of saying, not you, Abram, not you. You're not going to do it the way you did it in chapter 15 and 16 of handing your wife over 
or of her handing you someone else, but I'm going to do this for you. And then it's this expansion of it too. A father of many nations, father of a multitude. He's saying kings will come from you. It's going to go, the whole world is going to be blessed through you. So it's, a, it's grace for Abram, but it's also grace for the whole world through him. It's grace to him and uh, through him. Um, and he, then he says, you know, I will, you'll be very fruitful and you'll multiply, which is an echo of the original thing that God says in chapter 1 to the first human beings, be fruitful and multiply, which is the, God's way of saying, I haven't forgotten this thing that I started. And I am so committed to my people and to my world that I'm going to undo through you guys the effects of sin on the world. I'm back to plan A but with some extra stuff. Um, Life with God, how do we live life with God? Life with God means means a fundamental shift in our identity. It means that we get new names. And the New Testament has so many things to describe people who are believers in Christ. It says that you're glorified. It says that you're seated in heaven. It says that you were chosen by God. It says that you are his children. It says that you are beloved. It says that you are holy. And learning to take those on as names for ourselves, a shift in identity. What is your identity rooted in? Who are you? What would be your nickname? What's the nickname that you would actually have from your friends? If it's a Bible way of doing it where they name you, like Jacob in the Old Testament is a liar and his name means liar, that's the worst. What would your name be? What do you aspire for it to be? What do you wish for it to be? Um, is it oriented around you and what you are going to accomplish and do? Are you basing your identity, even as I ask that question, on something that you can perform or do for someone else? Or how they perceive you? Or is it rooted in who God has said that you are as his child who's holy and loved? What's your identity? What's your name? But then last, um, how's he going to remember all this? <laughs> Like, how is he going to remember the promise? This is really important. You think he would never forget. But God gives him another thing. He gives him a command. He gives him a name, a new identity. Um, and he gives him a sign. This is where it gets weird. Uh, gives him a sign. He says, uh, circumcision is that sign. This will be a sign for you. Um, everybody know what circumcision is? Not necessarily. I've had, a, I've had great confusion through the years in RUF when I mentioned this. So you may not know what it is. So I'm going to tell you what it is. Uh, it is removing the foreskin of a penis with a blade, all right, and then tossing the extra away. All right, you throw it away. Unless you could keep it. I guess you could make jewelry. Or, um, so that's what it is, um, which, by the way, sometimes people object. They're like, hey, there's some archaeologists have shown that like, circumcision already existed before the time of Abraham. That is true. God is picking up a known ritual. He doesn't have to explain to Abraham what it is. He's just like, Get circumcised. He's like, okay, I'll do it, and uh, does it. Um, so that's not like a problem. But circumcision is a sign, and it, a sign uh, points to something else. Even our modern, so that exit sign is, a, is there to tell us that that's the way out. It's not there for its own self. A sign points to something else. What is circumcision pointing to? Why does it give him this painful sign? <laughs> Um, in the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament, as this, some of these ideas are developed, it says that in Hebrews 9, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness or remission of sins. 
Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. When sin enters the world, as a consequence, it brings death. Because anything apart from God is not life but death. And so, in order for life to be given into death, blood has to be shed. That's sort of the logic of the Bible that might be very foreign to you. I would love to get coffee with you and talk about it. Um, But that's the idea. And I've mentioned this a few times. There's this thing, a way I like to describe how the Old Testament relates to the New, is in the Old Testament you see things in seed form, or you think about an acorn that develops into an oak tree. Think about something small growing into something bigger. Acorn to oak tree. And circumcision is this cleansing through the shedding of blood, forgiveness of sins, removal of sin and uncleanliness, through the shedding of blood. That's the acorn. And Christ is the oak tree. Christ on the cross. As this develops and unfolds throughout the, the Bible. It sounds familiar because it is. It's the, just the basic gospel that the Christian faith is based on. That Jesus has died and bled in our place so that we can be cleansed and acceptable to God and be, walk before him and be blameless. Okay? That might make a little sense to you or a lot of sense to you. But here's the thing. If I'm Abram and God says, okay, here's the sign of the covenant for me and for you. That's going to be a testament to not just your cleanliness, but your, you know, membership in my people. It shows that you're one of me. That's another function of circumcision. Um, I'm going to be like, okay, I get the whole shedding of blood thing, but why don't we take off my left earlobe? Like, that'd be cool, right? Like, shedding of blood, and signs are supposed to be visible, like, then other people would see it, and they'd know right away when they see me. Like, I'm marked. It's a sign, right? Um, you're going to cut me where? Like, why? That seems so weird. Ever thought about that? I would argue that the location of circumcision is there for a reason. It's there for a reason. Um, and here's why. Um, what was the promise? You're going to have children. The world will be blessed through your offspring. So I'm going to cut you right there. In other words, God is saying to Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to put the cross of Jesus right in the middle of your marriage at its most intimate moment. And through that, my promises will be fulfilled. You've been trying it on your own all along. But I'm going to show you that through my covenant and through my promise and through my grace and eventually through the blood of my son, you will have your son and the world will be blessed. Walk before me. Keep my covenant. Um, and so here's this thing, like, what about for us? Like, where is this New Testament? Jesus came. So here's this thing, like, uh, in the acorn oak tree, like, circumcision points forward to Christ, but what, like, what's our sign? What do we get? This is, this is from Colossians chapter 2. It's talking about circumcision. And Paul says this, In him, in Jesus, you also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, comma, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Did you see what he did there? You've been circumcised in Christ through baptism. In the New Testament, the church, the church now, we practice this thing called baptism, which is, again, a representation of the cleansing of sin, putting off of sin, of cleansing, and of membership in the people of God. So in the, in the New Testament, you have uh, baptism as fulfilling the Old Testament circumcision, but now there's no blood. Why? Because Christ's blood was shed once for all. And then he says this, And you who were dead 
in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's an amazing thing. This connection between the old and the new. Uh, Circumcision points forward to Jesus and our baptism points back and we don't need the blood anymore because Jesus has shed his blood. So God is saying, do you want to live before me? Do you want to live before me, Abraham? Listen to my command. Listen to the name I give you and mark yourself with the gospel. Make it who you are. Um, Ingrain it into you and to your children and their children after them so that all the nations will be blessed through you. And I love this picture of like kings will come from you. He's like going on generation after generation after generation of this covenant and of this promise going forward. Um, Let me wrap up here. Here's this idea of this. Here's how this is relevant to us today. God giving this man a promise and saying the whole world's going to be blessed through you and the gospel of grace is going to be passed on generation after generation after generation. Um, when I was in high school, I ran track and the best events in track and field are relay races. You might differ. It's the best. Uh, and here's why, because it's like track is a very individualistic sport, but it's the one thing where you have to kind of work together. And I ran the four by 400, which is like also, I, it's my favorite race, uh, not just because I ran it, but because it's like long enough for there to be drama, but short enough to not be like tedious. Right? Um, and uh, there's this uh, idea of passing the baton. And you, it was interesting today, I, uh, I got to meet up with um, Mike London, the new football coach. And he has like a track and field baton like sitting in his office. And I got to like pick it up and hold it. And I forgot how light they were. It's like this real cool, cool thing. And it brought back these memories. I'd already written this. And I was like, this is crazy. I'm holding like a baton. I haven't held one of these in years. And uh, it's like... The kingdom of God, the story of God's grace in the world is this massive relay race. And you can picture Abraham and then passing the baton to his son Isaac and then Isaac to Jacob and Jacob to Joseph and then the Israelites form and then Moses takes the baton and then David and then Solomon and then the prophets and then it finally gets to Jesus who is the ultimate one and then he's got his disciples and they take the baton and they run and they run and they run and you've got Origen and Augustine and Anselm and, and Luther and Whitfield and Wesley and Martin Luther King Jr. And all the people, whoever it was that first taught you about the gospel and the baton is getting passed and passed and passed. And they taught us, my, I had a bad track coach, so he might not have known what he was talking about, but he said that when you pass that baton, it's supposed to pop in their hand so they know that it's there. You want to pop it as they hold out their hand. And you were standing here with your hand out, waiting for that baton. And this passage is saying, did you just feel it pop in your hand? To take the story of God, to take the story of grace with all of its irony and all of its hope, and to run. And you look over your shoulder, and the reason I love a, a, a relay race is because there's other runners that when they pass it off to you, they're yelling behind you, run, go, go, go. And that's what Abraham and Genesis 17 are yelling at us. Nations will come for you. The whole world will be blessed through you. And you have received that. And there's one more thing I want to talk again about the name. 
And this, the Bible sometimes talks about the Christian life where life is running a race and that race will be over. When our race is over, I'm going to read to you from the book of Revelation. It gives this picture of heaven. Uh, and this, it says this, He who has an ear, let him hear. To the one who conquers or finishes the race, I will give him a white stone. Now, the, the end of the, the world, heaven, is often pictured as a wedding feast. It was common in that culture at wedding tables to have a white stone to mark people's place with a name written on it. And that was like your little marker. Okay? I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Did you catch that? Jesus says, when you show up at my wedding feast, at my return, I'm going to give you a little stone with a name on it that's your new name. And it's not just a little nickname. It's a biblical name that tells you exactly who you are. That sums up your whole full self. And you're going to look at that stone and you're going to read your new name that only you will know. It's Jesus' nickname for you. And you're going to look at that name and you're going to go, this is exactly who I am. This is exactly who I was made to be. And in the meantime, take the baton and run the race and run towards your new name and all that it will mean for you.